Uh, let's pray together. Father, we are weak and frail and so often um, prone to stumble. Um, and even worse, we love sin. We love the things that snare us. But Lord, you are great and you are strong. And so where our minds are weak, where our bodies are weak, where our souls are weak, Lord, would you be our strength? And in all things, would you be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so yes, it's Father's Day today. Yesterday, we were able to get together with my family and uh, celebrate a little bit. And one of the verses in our passage that we'll read in just a moment uh, today is just this. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And it's already been said today, but I want to make it abundantly clear, if nothing else is heard, that uh, in my immediate family and family tree, there are many wonderful fathers and some really bad ones. And in our family tree, together with all the churches in Holland and in America and in the world and throughout history, we have one father who's always good. Uh, and every good gift comes from him. And any good thing that we could want, we can ask him and he will give us. And that's the good news of the gospel. Uh, so for the summer, we are uh, going to be spending a lot of time in James. Uh, Pastor Stephen started us off in James two weeks ago. And last week we had a guest preacher who uh, spoke on the Apostles' Creed, uh, Earl Slotman, which was wonderful. Um, but we're still in James 1. And just as a recap, we're going to read all the way from the beginning of chapter 1 through to verse 18. I don't know if it's up on the screen. So find James. It's an epistle after the book of Hebrews, pretty close to the very back of your Bible. If you're in Peter uh, or John or Jude, you're too far, go back. If you're in Hebrews or uh, any of these other books, you're going to be too close. I think we'll be able to find it. And let's hear the word of the Lord together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind, and that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother, in humble circumstances, ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. 
Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, so that is most of the first chapter, the first portion of the first chapter. We're going to look especially at verse 9 through 18. Um, and we're, we're not going to deal with everything that could be dealt with this uh, as is good and typical. Uh, but this is going to be largely a sermon about buildings, which seems fitting considering all that has been done and is going on around us and in New York this last week. We're going to talk about buildings, and especially church buildings, because uh, we're building and in my life, I've had the privilege of attending lots of churches, or at least a good number of them, uh, many buildings. I think if I've not been lied to, this particular church is 166 years old. Is that right? And I think some of you have been in this building that entire time. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but I know most of us, uh, many number of us have been in North Holland, a member of North Holland for generations at least, and we've spent our youth uh, through our adulthood um, here in this place. It's not been my case. Um, it's not been a lot of our cases as well. I, uh, let's see, I've been here for three years. Um, before I was here, I was at a place primarily called Central Wesleyan, um, which is like this, but not at all in any way. It's huge, big, right? There's big lights and there's tons of programs and there's lots and lots of good memories for me. But it's nothing like this place in look or in feel. Uh, I've worshipped in my life at Christ Memorial. Christ Memorial was where I was when I was really young. Uh, Harderwick, uh, Watershed, Beechwood Church on the north side of Holland. Uh, we were at Mars Hill Church in Granville for a while. We've been at a number of others in the west, uh, in the west Michigan area. Uh, one church I worshipped at actually never intended to be a church, which is kind of peculiar. I lived in Kansas City briefly, um, just a few months on and off. And while I was there, I spent a lot of time at a house of prayer. And so this house of prayer was actually like a, a missions-sending organization, but part of their missions organization was a, a commitment, a devotion to sustaining 24-7 prayer. So they had a big room, about this size actually, not organized this way, but about this size, uh, with, with tables and with chairs and with booths for prayer and these sorts of things in a stage where there would be a leader who would be leading in prayer through song or through scripture reading or these sorts of things, 24-7, every single hour of every single day. By the time I was there, they had been doing that for 10 years. And um, there were so many people, they never, again, they never intended to be a church. They wanted people to be a part of their own congregations. But there's so many people who are being moved and transformed by, by this place and this, this uh, expression of faith that they were demanded to have a Sunday morning service. So I went to that one for a little while. Kansas City, Holland, at least three of the churches that have been most uh, memorable uh, to me, um, with fond memories all, are located in San Diego. I lived in San Diego for about five years, and, and the first of these in order of attendance date um, was actually an Australian church in San Diego. Uh, called Christian City Church San Diego, led by a 
uh, group of fashionable and charismatic Australians, um, namely one German Australian named Jürgen Mathesius, uh, and he had ambitions of reaching all of the lost souls of the San Diego suburbs, uh, which was peculiar to me, but he was very ambitious and very strong. And we met in a middle school gymnasium at the time, and I left this congregation uh, when I moved to Kansas City, and then when I came back, I went to a different church, and they had moved into a bigger and better building in their minds and all that sort of thing. When I came back to San Diego, I went to a church called Mid-City Church of the Nazarene, where I actually got to work, and Brittany, my wife, worked there as well as my sister uh, and other friends, um, helping in the children's ministry. And so Mid-City, you should know... I haven't talked to you about it in the past, is located in a district of San Diego called City Heights. And San Diego is already known largely for being a place where refugees, where immigrants gather. It's as far south, as far west, it's on the coast. People come there from everywhere. Uh, And City Heights is like the gathering center for immigrants. You could call it the refugee center. And Mid-City Church was right in the center of City Heights. And so This data is not entirely accurate anymore, but something like within a two-mile radius of where this church was, there were some 41 different language-speaking communities. And at Mid-City, we had seven of those languages represented with full congregations, functioning congregations. So every Sunday morning, if you can imagine, here in the sanctuary would be one service, and then down in the fellowship hall would be another service going on. And then in one of the classrooms, there'd be a small service going on, and there'd be a little bit of staggering. There's Swahili and Samoan and... Sudanese and French Creole and Spanish and uh, English and did I say Spanish? No, I think I did. I can't remember. And we in the basement in this little stuffy room had the kids from all of them for three hours, ages one to 13, every Sunday. It was tremendously difficult almost every time and it could not have been better. And my wife, uh, was one of the reasons why it was doable because she has so much patience, where I do not. My sister would often organize things and, again, show patience. And uh, some of my fondest memories and hopefully some transformative moments for these children were there as well, coming from that small, humble, crowded, tiny little basement room uh, that was moldy a couple times. Uh, But that's not the church I'm most interested in today. The one that I'm interested in is actually one also in San Diego that I don't remember the name of. Um, it's a bad start, anticlimactic, yeah. Uh, but it's really memorable. I went there twice, and it's memorable because it meets on a beach. And when I say on the beach, I don't mean like a cottage is on the beach, right next to the beach. I mean it's actually on the beach. The sand is under your feet. And so I want you to imagine this. I want you to come with me to San Diego for this moment, for this, this church experience. So use your imagination if you can. And we're going specifically to a part of San Diego called Pacific Beach. And if you have any memories or uh, uh, imaginations of what San Diego is like, Pacific Beach is like the epitome of that. There's lots of surfing. So you've got a boardwalk, cement boardwalk. You're walking down. There's a big, huge beach on your left. There's all sorts of shops on your right. There's surfers everywhere. There's skateboarders weaving in and out of you, cruising along the sidewalks. There's taco shops. There's bathing suits being sold everywhere. There's sunglasses being sold everywhere. Uh, There's usually somebody trying to offer you narcotics either for free or money. That's Pacific Beach. It's not the poorest part of San Diego. It's definitely not a rich part. And when my parents would visit us, they would stay in this part of San Diego. Uh, They'd stay in a little hotel called the Beach Cottages, which was an old building, white and green Again, located right on this boardwalk. 
And it was nostalgic for my dad. It was a building that he had really fond memories tied to. Because when he grew up, he lived in Scottsdale, Arizona. Any of you Arizona people? I know a lot of Michigan people are. Any Arizonans? A couple, yeah. He was in Scottsdale, and his family would vacation to San Diego, as is pretty common. And the beach cottages were where they would stay. So when they would visit my sister and I while we were in cottage, they'd stay at the beach cottages. And they smelled like the ocean, because they were right next to the ocean, and because the salt water air was kind of ingrained in the wood. And the sound of the waves was just ever-present. So in the morning, you'd smell that salt water through your open windows, and you'd hear the waves and the bustle of surfers making their way out of their cars and the people starting to make noise, and it was a really nice alarm clock. And nostalgic for the days of his youth, my dad woke up early on a Sunday and took a little stroll down this boardwalk. And he came back, and he woke the rest of us up, and he said, Hey, I found a church. We're going. Okay. So he let us out, took a short walk just north on the beach, and sure enough, there's a church gathered. At least kind of. Uh, It was a very simple, extremely simple setup. There's just a tent, like you'd see at a lot of graduation parties going around, right? And it was anchored into the sand. Okay. (laughs) Decent anchoring, right? Gave us a little protection from the sun, maybe some wind coverage. On the beach side of this tent is a small mound of sand that has been gathered in case the water started getting a little too high so it wouldn't get in our feet. On the other side is a table set up with uh, Bibles or tracts or various books that you could take uh, just for free. Um, And under the tent were collapsible chairs that were being set up when we got there. And so we kind of helped set up a little bit, even though we were new to the place. And in, in the front of the tent was a curtain. Um, and in front of that curtain was a pulpit, and by the pulpit there was a man. And this man uh, would greet every single person, try and get to know their name when they came in, uh, and a lot of the people he knew already, um, a lot of us were new like ourselves, and many who seemed to be the regulars at this church uh, probably didn't have to walk much further than the bench they were sleeping on down the street to attend, if you catch what I'm saying. The service was simple. pastor offered a statement as to why we were gathered, maybe a song or two. I don't even remember if there was music, actually. We'd pray, and he'd give, give a sermon. You see where we are? Can you picture yourself there? Close your eyes and kind of find it. Hear the shore. The people bustling. Maybe see the eyes of passerbys who are curious or who are repulsed by what they see happening. And then open your eyes again and see where we are. Where are we? Notice what we have. What do we have? How would you describe this? How would you put yourself in this place? What does North Holland feel like when you sit here? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? How do you get here? How does one be here? I want us to be especially attentive to what we have and to what we are and to what we're becoming and to who we are and to who we've been and to who we're becoming and to what we're building into what we're collecting and what we're building for. James 1, verse 9 through 11, if you're open, you can look there. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed, and in the same way the rich will fade away even while they go about their business.
business. So first question again for today is, do you believe that? Again, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Do you agree with that? James is suggesting that those in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Is this this not a contradiction, right? How can you say at once that you're low and, and high? Some of us know far too well what it's like to be in humble circumstances. Maybe for you it was a social humiliation. You felt like you didn't belong, like you were rejected. Maybe for you it was actual poverty. You were simply in humble circumstances and you didn't have things. The church on the beach was in a peculiar position of having both a million-dollar location and nothing that they could really call their own except a tent and maybe a table and a couple chairs. What are the circumstances here at North Holland in your life? Humble circumstances or high position. When I worked at Mid-City, the food distribution was, as you'd expect, attended by people in humble circumstances. If you go to get free food, it's probably because you have trouble affording food. One gentleman in particular is ingrained in my memory because he would come and often try to go through the line twice because he needed more. The first time he'd come through dressed as himself, and then the second time he'd come through with dark glasses on and a red and white striped cane with a ball on the end of it. He'd pretend to be blind. He's that desperate to get food. And you can think, right, his circumstances were so humble that he felt the need to fake a disability in order to get someone else's leftovers. He was willing to do that. And by the grace of God, that man can take pride in his high position. The beach church was filled with men and women of this ilk. I've lived below the poverty line, kind of, Uh, at least for brief periods of time, but I've also enjoyed plenty of wealth and I've always had a security blanket behind me. And that wealth afforded me comfort, power, security, steadiness, all sorts of things. And by these words of Scripture, it seems, if you just take them and kind of remove context for a minute, I do believe, though, that the men and women in line for food and the men and women who woke up off their street benches to attend this church and hear the gospel in a makeshift tent in California, are likely the ones who will sit on the thrones in heaven, held in positions of of authority, of high places. And Jesus himself, not just James, says as much. To those listening at the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Luke 16, he tells the story of a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores, being licked by dogs because of the pain of his wounds. He begs every day at the city gates. And upon his death, the angels carry him, it says, to Abraham's side, who's the patriarch of all of God's people. The beggar, elevated. This is what Jesus says. Sometimes our humiliation, when we think even of our own life, maybe it has to do with the sin that we're ashamed of. Right? Maybe we're full of sin. Jesus says, do you know what he says about those who have sinned much? They're forgiven much, and they love much. 
We associate confession of our sin with humiliation, and afraid of humiliation often we fail to confess. But do not be afraid of humiliation, because in that you will be raised to high places. Do not be afraid to confess your sin. As is said over and over and over again, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us, and it is in our weakness that we are strong. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. And in James, going back, verse 10. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. Jesus also says on the Mount of Olives, he says, Blessed are those of you who are poor, for yours will be the kingdom of of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. The beggar, Lazarus, who we talked about earlier, was passed by a wealthy man every single day. This again is from Luke chapter 16. Lazarus dies and is standing next to Abraham. The rich man also dies in this story that Jesus tells. You'll notice he's never named. And he's sent to Hades where he is in torment and agony, desperate for just a touch of water to his tongue. Abraham with Lazarus by his side, replies, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And shortly after telling this story of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus is approached by another unnamed rich man looking to gain eternal life. You remember this story, the the rich young prince, the rich young ruler? And he claims that he's kept all of the commandments, seeking eternal life, right? And Jesus tells him, this is what you lack. He says, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. In other words, become humble, become low, turn your circumstances the other way. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And unsettled and uncertain at the thought of living in humble circumstances, with Jesus, the rich man became sad. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, says Jesus. Oh, that he would have been able to take pride in his humiliation. Let's keep going. Jesus brings this up a lot. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. This is Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Oh, that he would have been able to take pride in his humiliation. And similarly on the point of sin. Yes, confession of sin is humiliating, right? To confess sin is to admit guilt, to admit wrongdoing, to admit weakness, frailty. It's to expose to others the things we wish we could keep hidden to ourselves. But embrace it. Embrace humiliation. If we claim we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not within us. It's from John. Be humiliated. 
therefore, before man so that you might be exalted before God. Be humiliated before man so that you might be exalted before God. And if you need an example of this, if you ever needed an example of this, look no further than Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who had everything. He had everything. Every advantage, every power, every privilege, every position, and he considered it all loss. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He had no bed. He had no wealth. Food was given to him by others. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was killed. And God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. But blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So which will it be? What are we building for? A plant that withers in the sun? Or an eternal crown that can endure the harshest fires? I love the imagery of the beach church. Think about it. When we think about our building, think about the beach church for a moment. It's right by the water. It's just a tent. A strong enough wind comes by, that church disappears. (laughs) A big enough wave, completely swept away. Jesus says, do not build your house on the sand, right? But build your house on the rock. Was the beach church built on sand or on rock? It's a trick question. <laughs> right? Because when wind takes things away, when water sweeps things away, the bedrock of the word of Christ is immovable, unshakable. The beautiful thing, we're familiar with our Congregation, our church, our building being washed away. Were any of you here in 1945? What happened? What? The fire. The building burned down. What did we lose? A building. What are we taking pride in? As we build this, this and it really is magnificent. This, have you, uh, I've gotten to walk through it. I got to sing a little bit 
Uh, even though there's do not enter signs, there was one door that they was taken down on, so I thought that was appropriate. Uh, in the, the multi-purpose room, as we're calling it tentatively, uh, there's beautiful echoes, reverb, unbelievable. We've got a magnificent facility that we're building. What are we going to take pride in? We need to be honest with ourselves, right? As far as material possessions go, we were hardly in humble circumstances before we took upon this project, and even more so now. We're rich. We're rich. We're among the rich. And that's not a bad thing. There's no shame in that. It says plainly, even in this passage, right? God gave us this building. God is not tempting us. This is a good gift. It's a good gift from God the Father. But what are we going to do with it? How do we perceive of it? How do we hold on to these things? Are we willing to be humble or are we going to hoard, take pride? Is it possible? I don't think that you're a group who are prone heavily towards this, but is it possible that there's temptation in getting a larger building and getting a larger facility and and upping our things that we begin to lack in other areas that that we begin to prioritize one thing? I just bring this up because I, I think we can avoid it. I think we can do great things. Here's... Here's the world. Here's the word. If the building, if the building, if the building, if that building, if this building is just a building, it's nothing. In every circumstance imaginable, uh, am I obligated to make a Marvel or a Star Trek or a Star Wars reference while I'm up here? (laughs) 50-50 shot. So in the new Avengers movie, right, Doctor Strange, he sees 14 million potential outcomes, right, and there's only one in which it survives. Well, I'm going to tell you an unfortunate fact. 14 million out of 14 million potential outcomes, this building will eventually fall down and be destroyed. Eventually it will. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. In every instance, just like the Beach Church reminds us so plainly, the building itself is temporary. The crown of glory is eternal. And that exists in humiliation, in the low places, when we don't take pride in our wealth, but in the gifts that God has given us. James tells us what those gifts are. He says this, Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift from the Father of the heaven, is from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And he chose to give us. What did he give us? He gave us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. He's given us birth, a new life, forgiveness of our sins through the word of truth. He's given us the Holy Spirit, the same spirit by which Jesus healed the sick, by which the apostles performed many miracles, by which the gospel was shared with the whole world. And he's given us adoption into the one family of the one Father that we have. These are our good gifts so that we may be the first fruits. And as all of you know, if there are first fruits, what does that mean they're intended to be? More fruits. Let's be a church that though we know our building is washing away eventually, though we have no shame in building a magnificent facility that is going to be used by many, many people, that takes pride in the fact that we are a people filled with the Spirit of God who've been given the word of truth that brings life to the dead, that does not blow away in the wind, 
And like the Beach Church, let us have completely open doors so that any who walk by can see the joy and the glory of the Lord when they, when they come in, or even if they're just passing, right? Let us be a church that is right next to the waves of the Pacific Ocean. The symbol of chaos in the Bible is almost always water. It's very frequently water, right? Let's be a church that plants ourselves in positions right next to the chaos. Even though we know that is the thing that intends to destroy us, let us be there knowing that the word of truth is more powerful. And let you be the people who understand that this building is not what matters, but that the one temple of the Lord, the body of Christ, the believers gathered together in faithfulness to service to the King, who is above all because he humbled himself low. We are the building. We are the hope. We are the opportunity in the world for the kingdom of God to come. It's going to take you going to your neighbors, meeting people you don't know, talking with people you probably don't like at first, inviting them into your small groups, stretching your comfort zone. In many ways, it's going to take believing just like the man did who built the church every Sunday morning, took it down, built it again, took it down, built it again, that every time we gather, we are a first fruit. We are a new creation. We are a new collection. We are a new people. That's our building. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you've called us our beloved, or your beloved. You've, you've called us your children. And you've called us to do great things in this world. And so I pray that we would become more and more aware of just how much you love us. That we would become more and more aware of the good gifts that you have given us. And that in contrast to the things of this world that so often entice us, Lord, would those grow dull as you, the riches of heaven Grow bright and alluring. Father, we love you and we believe that you're going to do great things, that the lost will be saved, uh, that these facilities will be filled and used, um, that laughter will surround us. Um, And we bless you. Would you receive all glory and all honor and all might in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.